Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott. Hello to all my friends in the poutine world. Is it a poutine world? It's a poutine world. Is the poutine world a globe or is it flat? Oh, it's a globe. Well, yeah. it's actually... It's, Thank it's, goodness. It's more of a... Uh, the bottom half is round. The top half is kind of pointy and liquidy and cheesy. So I'm trying to say like it's like a bowl of poutine. Gotcha. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Chomp, chomp, chomp. I'd love an apple right now. Granny Smith apple. Yeah, but eating an apple and having a podcast? You think I already have a lot of mouth noises that you have to edit out? Yeah. Actually, I was listening to the Ron Burgundy podcast. Yep. His first episode after his trailer is about true crime. Oh, really? It's interesting. Oh, interesting. And he he does like three cases within three minutes. Oh, wow. It must be detailed. (laughs) The detail is is... (laughs) Remarkable. Yeah, a minute a case. Woo. Yeah. That's too much time, really. Yeah, but he eats an apple at the beginning of his episode, so. Seriously, now that an apple's come up, I want a Granny Smith apple. Gonna have to do it later. Yeah. This episode takes us back across the country to Orangeville, Ontario, and back in time to the 1990s. Yeah, this is a case I remember. This is the case of David Snow, the cottage killer. We want to thank Rebecca McNall once again for assisting with research and getting some of our case details for the show. Yeah, thanks, Rebecca. Yeah, this this dude is, uh, as we will be learning throughout this episode, screwy. Uh, and a creep. Very much. This is the, the great... Surprise. This is exactly the kind of person who gives you the creep. So when you, when yeah. you think about, ooh, that guy makes me feel uneasy. Yeah, it's this guy. Orangeville is a quaint little town with an easygoing pace. It's a tourist destination for its antique and artist shops in the historic and picturesque downtown. That sounds like a great place. There are plenty of great restaurants serving a variety of cuisines. Maybe apples? (laughs) They might have apples there, Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure. The arts and culture scene is growing and vibrant. There's plenty to do outside, if that's your thing, with places to hike and stroll like the Island Lake Conservation Area. It's a simple getaway from the busy city, as it's just about an hour northwest of Toronto. Yeah, this sounds like a great place, seriously. Yeah, many city folk own lakeside summer homes, large and small, and hobby farms in nearby Caledon. That's where we're focused today. Let's move there, Mike. I wouldn't mind. In the spring of 1992... Media was reporting that a number of residents returning to the recreational properties in the area, left vacant for the winter, had found them broken into. This is not uncommon of seasonal homes. It's typical for them to be broken into because they're left alone for such long periods. Yeah. 
Valuables, including firearms, were missing from these homes, but what was left behind was rather odd. Oh, you don't say. Folks were finding that whoever had broken into their home had also been squatting there for a time. Literally and metaphorically. Police were able to obtain fingerprints at each scene and match them up with each other, pointing to the same serial perpetrator. Mm. Porn magazines not belonging to the families were found. But if that's not creepy enough, the house hermit, as people started to call this guy, left other gifts as well. Yeah, the, the be prepared for the creep. Here it comes. There were four liter plastic juice bottles filled with human urine. Great. And oh. there was human feces wrapped in paper, sometimes in a plastic bag. Like I, I can't even fathom, like, why somebody like never in my life have I thought about this? I'm just going to wrap my poop in, in in paper. Well, apparently, a lot of these places didn't have their water turned on during the winter because the pipes would freeze. So, well, I don't care. Go outside. But yeah, go outside. Don't don't poop and pee in 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 bags. And, and if you do, maybe like at least once a week, go and toss them somewhere. Yeah, I'm just saying. Just but leave so, them in there. It's oh, yeah. kind of aggressive to leave your pee in your poo everywhere. Oh, it's very passive-aggressive. Well, uh, I think that's, like, aggressive. That's aggressive. active aggression? Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's active. But, yeah, so, like, yeah, it's pretty creepy, this this fella, already. There were also odd pieces of paper laying about in a lot of these places containing what appeared to be handwritten lists of World War II-era ships, submarines, planes, and other weaponry. Because why not? Why not? Because why not? One couple had come home to their property in March, only to be confronted by a thin, disheveled man who forced them at gunpoint to drive him back to Toronto before he fled from their car. Hmm. Hmm. Another couple had friends check on their home, and sure enough, they had an encounter with a man matching the same description. Uh, but he ran off in that case and didn't kidnap anybody. Thank God, yeah. Ian Blackburn was a 54-year-old real estate agent, and his wife, Nancy, was a public health nurse in Toronto schools. Nancy was also a regular nursing volunteer at Toronto homeless shelters. That's fantastic. Nestled amid the trees in Caledon, away from the bustle of the busy roadway, this middle-aged couple, the Blackburns, owned a farmhouse on 50 acres of land that they used to get away from Toronto as often as they could. Yeah, I would get away from the hustle and bustle. From Kate Lyne's book, Crime Scene, quote, The Blackburns owned an upscale home on a quiet residential street in downtown Toronto, but their Caledon property consisted of a small, unpretentious white clapboard house built over top an original log building with a wraparound porch. It was tucked a short distance from the road amongst a small grove of maple, elm, and pine trees and an adjacent apple orchard. There's your apples. Yes! An unusual octagon-shaped barn built in 1890 was situated a few hundred meters atop a small knoll overlooking the farmhouse. End quote. It sounds very picturesque. Uh, you took the words right out of my mouth. Like, I, that, I, could, I could see a life on there. Yeah. And how safe you would feel and how comfortable it would be. And, Just the yeah. sound of the wind yeah. rustling through the trees and no no traffic sounds and yeah, like no just, sirens going by. And It's hard to imagine like a nicer uh, place, uh, a nicer way to live than that. Yeah. Right next door, Ian's sister Susan and her husband Orville Osborne had another 50-acre property. Both of these had been willed to the Blackburn siblings by their father when he passed away. Oh, okay. The two couples were not only close family-wise, but they were great friends as well. well that's fantastic. That's a lot of territory to share with somebody. So yeah, like, absolutely. Wow. So two 50-acre farms right next to each other. I mean, you kind of can't get in each other's way. No. Yeah. It's just perfect. Oh, my neighbor is like way over there. But to to be getting along with them so yeah. well, it's like just you would just feel, again, so safe and so comfortable yeah. and so uh, yeah, just at peace. On April 7, 1992, Ian Blackburn traveled from Toronto to his Caledon farm to check out a problem with the plumbing. It was his first time back at the farm in three weeks. Phone records and police interviews would later reveal that Nancy had called around to friends asking about Ian as she was concerned about him when he didn't come home. 
Phone records also showed a three-minute call from the farmhouse to the Blackburn home in Toronto around 7.36 that evening. Nancy didn't come to work the next day. Oh, this is concerning. On April 8th, an OPP officer was checking properties in the area after the house hermit break-ins and kidnapping. Mm -hmm. She pulled into the Blackburn's driveway. There she saw Ian's maroon Cadillac parked away from the farmhouse. As the officer drove up, she noted a can of German beer sitting on the front fender on the driver's side of Ian's car. Hmm. She got out, checked the car's doors, and they were locked. No one seemed to be around the quiet property. The officer knocked on the farmhouse door three times, but there was no answer. So she got back in her cruiser, noted the incident, and left. It's still pretty, like, she. you would imagine in such a small, quaint area, the officer is very familiar with the surroundings and can yeah. note when something just seems a bit off. So it's, I mean, it's because it nothing of what she described going by would have made me been like, let me go and check this out. I think the only thing that would have set me off is that beer can. What's that just doing there? And why, you know, why is nobody answering the door if, if the car is there? Yeah, but like, yeah, Maybe it's massive, it's 50 or, acre property. Yeah, exactly. Maybe they're, you know, like, yeah. Interesting. On April 10th, Susan and Orville Osborne saw Ian Blackburn's Cadillac still parked in the driveway. It was not where he'd normally parked his car, but they thought really nothing of it. The Osbournes were supposed to be getting together with Ian and Nancy on April 12th for their annual sugaring off party. That's where they enjoyed their own homemade maple syrup. Oh, yum. How Canadian is that? Oh, right? Nancy Blackburn, who suffered from lupus, was not overly comfortable in the cold weather. So April was the earliest in the year she could really make the trek to Caledon. Hmm. She was always excited about the spring and summer near Orangeville. Oh, I bet. When Nancy and Ian did not show up for the party, the Osbournes went next door to see what they could uncover. Ian's car was still in the driveway, right where it had been parked since April 7th, five days ago. Hmm. No lights were on, so the Osbournes let themselves into the farmhouse with a key they had. Of course, you trust your family with a key, so... Yeah, for sure. And, go and, check on my place. Yeah, and especially if you're in, you, something's going off on your yep. radar telling you, this, I feel uneasy, you're going to go in. Yeah, nobody was home. The heat had not been turned on, and it was cold inside. They noted two garment bags on the bed in a downstairs bedroom, but nothing else stood out to them at the time. The Osbournes called the Blackburn home in Toronto and got no answer, and they started to become concerned. Yeah. Why would Ian just leave his car there? That was out of character. Well, like, and how would they get back to Toronto if the car was there? On the morning of Monday, April 13th, Susan Osborne was very worried about her brother and sister-in-law, Ian and Nancy Blackburn. They were still not answering their phone. Orville Osborne called their son Jamie, who was living in Toronto at the time, and asked him to go and check on his uncle Ian and Aunt Nancy. Jamie went to the Blackburn's house. Nancy's light blue Chevy Celebrity was parked in the driveway. Mail was in the mailbox and newspapers were piled up at the front door. The oldest one dated April 7th, the last day either of the Blackburns had actually been seen. Jamie knocked on the door repeatedly before letting himself in with a key. Jamie called out as he entered the house, but there was no one home. The house was quiet, but one thing stood out as odd. Nancy's purse was standing open on the bed. Jamie left, went home, and called his dad Orville with his findings. Orville Osborne called the OPP to report his in-laws missing. Then he called Jamie back. He asked Jamie about the Blackburn's cat. Jamie hadn't seen the cat, but he hadn't looked for it either. Orville surmised that if the cat was there, the Blackburns would be back soon. Jamie agreed to go back to the house for a more thorough look. Jamie found the cat in the basement. There was no food or water in its bowls, and the kitty was clearly upset and hungry. After feeding and watering the cat, Jamie went back upstairs and noticed a set of car keys. He grabbed the keys belonging to Nancy's car and went out into the driveway. 
There was a tissue on the front seat with blood stains on it. Jamie decided to check the trunk of the Chevy, walked around to the rear of the car and opened the trunk. He was struck first by the smell, then the visage of his aunt and uncle, both dead, bruised and battered, and crammed into the trunk. Police were called. Wow, what a horrifying scene to come across, especially being like inside, everything seemed pretty tranquil. Like, you know, aside from a hungry cat, it wasn't like everything was thrown about. And so I wonder what told him to look in the trunk. <sighs> I guess, you know, just maybe, oh, maybe they've got suitcases there or something. Yeah, it's tough to say. Yeah, it's tough to say. But, um, a pro well, I guess probably finding uh, the uh, paper towel or what napkin or whatever it was with blood on it probably made him, you know, I can imagine that being like, oh, okay, that's concerning. Let me, you know, like, let me just look around the rest of the car. But yeah, anyways, to have to f stumble across that and see that, oh my God, that poor guy. From court documents, quote, post-mortem examination did not determine a precise time of death, but was consistent with the Blackburns having died on April 7th or 8th. The cause of Mrs. Blackburn's death was strangulation. She had suffered a number of injuries occurring before death, including blunt force injuries. Ligature marks and other injuries suggested that she'd been hogtied, carried and moved, striking hard objects. Mr. Blackburn himself died of asphyxia. There were signs of manual pressure on his neck. The pathologist could not rule out that a bag might have been placed over Mr. Blackburn's head. There were ligature marks consistent with him having been bound but left sufficiently mobile in order to operate a motor vehicle. Jesus. Blunt force injuries to his face, neck, and under his chin were consistent with having been caused by the muzzle of a, or barrel of a gun. Whew. End quote. Wow. So they, it's, they were uh, violently uh, assaulted mm -hmm. before being killed. Yes. So, dare I say tortured. It's scary. Yeah, For very, both of them. Yeah, very, very. Police believe that due to Nancy's injuries, she was actually the prime target of the attack, that the perpetrator's attack on her was sexually motivated. Ian's wallet was found with his body and was emptied of cash. Hmm. Both residences and the cars were processed as crime scenes. It appeared someone had entered the Caledon farm through the rear window of the bedroom in the home using a simple flathead screwdriver to pry the window open. Oh, wow. There was blood smeared in various places throughout the farmhouse, in the dining room, on a trap door that led to the basement, and on the stairs that led up to a loft attic. That was a bit like at first when hearing, you know, you got in just using a screwdriver to pry open the window, I'm like, Jesus, that seems easy. But again, small, small town, town. Middle of nowhere. So you're not yep. really, it's not something you're thinking about having happen. No. There was no sign of a struggle, and everything appeared to be in its place. The octagonal barn was searched with no evidence of note found. The Toronto home turned up no significant evidence other than money missing from Nancy's wallet. The driver's seat in Nancy's car was found to be back further than someone of her height would have been comfortable driving. Mm. The blood on the Kleenex came back as that of a third party. It did not belong to Ian or Nancy. Hmm. Wow, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, they mentioned earlier that uh, Ian was bound in a way that he possibly could have driven, so that would have made sense. Yeah. Um, or the bad guy drove, but we'll learn a little bit more about yeah, that as yeah. we move on. Yes. It was believed that Ian Blackburn had entered the home and was confronted by a man who was squatting there, in all likelihood, the house hermit. Yeah. Ian would have been beaten and held after being forced to call his wife and lure her to the farm. Mm, okay. Ian was murdered, and Nancy was brutally sexually assaulted and then killed. The two were placed into the trunk of Nancy's car and driven back to their Toronto home, where a perpetrator left them after stealing the cash from Nancy's purse and fleeing. Interesting. Okay. Family members and close friends were quickly ruled out as suspects. Probably the first people they looked at were the next door neighbors and what their relationship was like. Yeah, which, yeah, I suppose so. But um, yeah, they, well, it depends if they would be in the will, but uh, to yeah. inherit the house. But yeah, uh, uh, for however they were able to do it, they ruled them out quickly. So the OPP called in their FBI trained profilers early on in the case. Oh, and this is Kate Lyons, uh, 
the crime scene book. Mm, yes. Where she mentions uh, this profile that they worked up. Mm. And here are some points from the profile. Oh, I can't wait. I love these. The unsub was asocial but functional. Check. Obviously uncomfortable around people. Mm-hmm. Chose to interact only when unavoidable or in his best interest. Quiet and reserved. Seen by some as eccentric. Personal hygiene would be average to poor, as would be his dress. Poor self-image. May have minor criminal record. Worked with his hands, but unemployed at the time of the offenses. Did not commute anywhere to work at all. Was likely single, but could have been previously married. If previously married, the perp would have believed his wife inferior physically or mentally. More likely a mother figure than a wife. He took time to plan and go through with his crimes. Determined and capable of taking risk, i.e. moving Blackburns from Caledon to Toronto. May not have his own car, but if he did, it would be just enough to get from point A to point B. May not even have a driver's license, and sexual sadism was the strongest motivator of the crime. Yeah, so having known already a, a fair bit about this case, as we go along, we'll be able to go back now and uh, yep. and see how how accurate the profile is. Because I, I love I love profiling; it's a fascinating science. Yeah, yeah, I I quite like to match up the profile to what you eventually learn yeah, about yeah. the perpetrator. More often than not, it's eerily uh, accurate. So these guys are typically great at what they do. Investigators got a break fairly quickly. Garbage bags were found in a ditch nearby the Blackburn farmhouse. In the bags, a portion of newspaper and food wrappers that had been removed from the Blackburn home. Human feces found wrapped in newspaper and put in plastic bags. Large juice bottles full of human urine. Papers with lists of what appeared to be military equipment in handwriting easily matched to those already found. Yeah, so that'll really quickly let give them uh, an indication as to who this is. Yeah, the evidence went a long way to point at the house hermit yeah. as the same perpetrator as the kidnapper and now murderer. Because I don't know how many, like, um, feces, paper wrapping, urine and jug it's filling crazy. criminals there are in that small town. Yeah, but who is this guy? Oh, great question. They had a good description of him. He was thin, had dark hair, around 5'10 to 6 feet tall, disheveled, unshaven, gold-rimmed glasses, rumpled clothing, body odor, bad breath, and bad teeth. Already some similarities to the profile. A news release was created using the OPP profile, a sketch, description of the house hermit, and a photo of the military-like writings that they'd found. Yeah, I think that would probably be, because that's pretty specific and unique thing, so it would be something that's uh, clear to anybody who knows him. Yeah. That's a very specific thing. Local papers and radio and TV ran with the story. Yeah, yeah. They play a huge role in helping uh, profilers. Allison Shaw, a local artist in Orangeville, read the profile in the newspaper and her heart sank. Mm. The article described a friend of the family... Almost to a T. Oh, boy. His name was David Alexander Snow. Hmm. Allison called the police. All the similarities were too uncanny to ignore. It had to be David Snow. The profile and sketch fit him, and Allison had seen David writing this exact same kind of list. He'd been obsessed by World War II. Yep, yep. Allison was horrified that the man who'd been her husband's business partner the landlord of her art studio and the owner of Simply Timeless Antiques in Orangeville could be responsible for a brutal double murder. David had gotten Allison's husband, Darris, to drive him all over in search of antiques as he loathed driving himself. Hmm, another indicator. He had even babysat for Allison and Darris at times. Oh, jeez. Allison knew 37-year-old David was an eccentric loner, but she felt safe around him. David had mentioned that the loss of his father was the low point of his life, and Allison assumed that his eccentricities may have stemmed from that and other childhood issues that David was unwilling to talk about. Yeah, I don't imagine him being somebody to emote with friends. I, apparently his father had died 
in front of him when he was very young. Oh, wow. Like a 10 or 11. Yeah, that would be traumatic. But she went on, she kept thinking that David was harmless. Well, typically, I mean, unless you see something yeah. or are aware of something and somebody comes across as pleasant, that's what you're going to think. Yep. Allison and her husband, Darius, had no idea where David Snow was now. He'd vanished some months ago. Their business had kind of fallen apart. Yeah. Some things did click into place for Allison, though. The Shaws had sorted through stuff left behind by Snow in a storage space a while after he'd gone. He owed them money, and the two hoped they'd find some hidden treasures there to offset the cash. What did they find? They didn't find much of value, but mm. they did find hardcore pornography uh, that included painful and violent sex scenes with bondage. Okay. Okay. As well, they discovered more writings, like the military writing left behind at the crime scenes. Sadly, unaware of the importance, they had burned these things with the other junk that they'd found. Yeah, um, at that time, yeah, without context, no, yeah. you're just thinking, again, well, this is just, just some rambling just shit. garbage. Yeah. Yep. And probably pretty frustrated and pissed off because he's left them uh, owing money and everything. Uh, yep. so, yeah. David Snow had committed petty property crime before, and his fingerprints were on file. Oh. After Allison turned him in, cops compared those prints to the ones that they'd found at the crime scenes, and sure enough, they matched David Snow. Well, there we go. David Snow had a bungalow in Orangeville at 79 John Street. Hmm. Police obtained a search warrant and entered looking for more evidence connecting Snow to the crimes and possibly leading to his whereabouts. Yeah. There was junk everywhere in Snow's home, but no sign of him. They found more horrifically violent-themed pornography all over the house and more military writings. Yeah, that profile's, like, so far pretty spot on. It really is. Yeah, yeah. The only thing with Snow is, like, he'd never been married. Yeah. He didn't own his own car. He just hated driving. Which she did, she did say, he may not even have a driver's license. Yep. Yeah. Oddly, looked as though Snow had been camping out in the attic of his own home. Mm -hmm. He had a mattress, blankets, radio lights, and a small cook stove with a frying pan up there. Yeah, very interesting. I almost kind of get the feeling that he's trying to live as a soldier might in World War Two. Oh, that's a good, interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, except for the mattress, because they didn't carry mattresses with them. Yeah. But still trying to, like, you know, uh, small, confined space, uh, very minimal. Who yeah. knows what was going on? There was clearly this person's cheese was slipping off their cracker though oh completely yeah and then he was eating it <laughs> a massive piece of evidence was found a briefcase with a photo in it of the blackburn's distinctive barn oh this was a concrete connection between david snow and the murders yeah yeah absolutely but they're positive he's familiar with the absolutely with the property at that point so what, what are you going to do? You need to dig into that to yeah. see whether or not that connection is real. So Dara Shaw was interviewed again by police, and they got more confirmation from him. Darris remembered Snow being involved in the reconstruction of old buildings. Oh. He really dug old buildings. Oh, okay. And he was hoping to find antiques and those kind of things in yeah, them. Yeah. In July or August of 1990, David Snow and Dara Shaw noticed the distinctive barn on the Blackburn property and met with the Blackburns to discuss the possibility of purchasing the barn for the purpose of moving it. But the deal never materialized. How interesting. So David Alexander Snow had known the Blackburns prior to their murder. Yep, yep, yeah, clearly. Uh, that's pretty concrete and definitive evidence. Where was he? Don't know. Searches in Caledon? Orangeville and Toronto turned up no trace of David Alexander Snow. If he'd done this once, he might just do it again, oh, so yeah. they needed to find him. Yeah, yeah. As the days and weeks passed, the people of Orangeville became fearful of what he might do next and who would be his target. Lots of David Snow sightings amounted to nothing. Mm. A Canada-wide warrant was issued and the manhunt widened. 
Well, I guess the challenge already has been established that he's a bit of a hermit. Like, he doesn't like to be around people. Mm. Uh, it's so hard to find somebody who doesn't show their face. Yeah, you're, it's not like he's going to be spotted walking down the street or, you know, going uh, shopping at IGA or something like that. Like, he's so, like Bigfoot. He, he's very much like but Bigfoot, But I guess yeah. he, because of his B.O. and bad breath, you'd call him Stinkfoot. Yeah, I think Bigfoot probably has better hygiene than what I've heard this fella had, but... Uh, uh, but yeah, so like, I mean, yeah, it would be incredibly hard to, to try to track down where this dillweed is. OPP even flew to Vancouver where Snow had many family and friends to learn as much as they could about him. Mm-hmm. Allison and Dara Shaw had also moved to Vancouver almost immediately after pointing the police in Snow's direction. Oh, interesting. Allison and Darris really had nothing new for the police. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but that's interesting that they moved to Vancouver. It was interesting that police were now looking in Vancouver because this is where the case would take on a much more frenzied pace. Oh, I'd say, yep. And let's take a quick break before we get into this. Phew. On June 29th, 1992, in the Kitsilano neighborhood of Vancouver on West Broadway, a man in dirty clothes with overpowering body odor entered a clothing store. Which is, by the way, very close to where my mother lived and lives. Due to publication bans and outer respect for the still-living victims, we will be using pseudonyms for their names from yes. this point. Great. Speaking to the pretty young store manager, we'll call her Angela, uh, the man claimed he was there to buy something for someone else, but needed to find a bank machine first so he could get some cash. Okay. So she steered him toward the nearest bank machine, and he left. Okay. As Angela was closing the store for the day, the man returned. This time he was waving a pistol, and he forced her into the back room. Shit, that's terrifying. The man made Angela strip naked, gagged her, and bound her wrists tight enough to cause permanent nerve damage. Shit. The man raped Angela with his hand until he was startled by sounds coming from the main store area. He left Angela terrified and alone to go see what he'd heard. Oh, man. Angela, seeing this as possibly her best chance, managed to unlock the back door and fled naked, still bound and screaming down the alleyway behind the store. The man fled, too. Uh, I'm constantly impressed by uh, people like her. Like, that takes a lot of strength. You're already terrified. You're thinking that, what if I get caught and he shoots me? Like, it takes a lot of strength to... Uh, uh, physically and mentally, to to flee like she did. So it's just I, I, I'm amazed and, and so proud of people like her. Just a few days later, Uh-oh. in July of 1992, over the course of nine days, everything would come to a head. On July 3rd, a pretty blonde 21-year-old, we'll call Bonnie, was closing up shop at a photography store in Vancouver. Well... When Bonnie didn't come home that night, her friends and family were worried and over the next few days reported her missing. Mm. No one she knew had any idea where she was. She was just gone. Shit. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember if that first assault was well publicized. I'm trying to remember if... uh... Because I'm thinking if the that sexual hit, assault at the store. Yeah, because I'm thinking if that had, if you were in the know on that, and then your friend goes missing, even more fear would probably set in. Not that it's not already just terrifying. There are two different ends of the city, though, and we know well, Vancouver stuff happens quite a bit. And over the span of a few days, you may not just jump to it being the same person. Well, it, it, if it was. As we share, like, it's not like West Van has its own uh, news network or something, so we all just watched. So, like, if it was a big story on the news for a day or two, that would still get. But I, I don't think for what I can remember that it was a, a publicized, uh, they didn't highly publicize the first event. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't remember. I wasn't here at the time. So yeah, I, it was yeah, a couple I came years the next before, year. A couple years before the Vancouver riots. So. But uh, yes, but so I'm, yeah, I'm just trying to like that would only compound the fear the family and friends must have of this girl. But e- either way, they're they're still shit and terrified. On July 11th, 1992, at around 11 a.m., a man walked into the Movieland video store in North Vancouver at the Westview Plaza, and that's just off the Number One Highway. Hmm. He was waving a handgun. Jeez. 
The man tied up the male owner of the store with telephone cord in the back, stating he was robbing the store and taking the 19-year-old female clerk we'll call Carla hostage. Mm. Carla was taken at gunpoint to her car, a 1975 Volkswagen Beetle, and ordered to drive eastward on the highway, on highway number one, taking the exit toward Mount Seymour, where the man had his campsite. Which, I mean, is a, is a really beautiful area, the North Shore, Mount, Mount Seymour. We had a we had a place down uh, off Mount Seymour. Probably. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty much, you're, you're almost living in a rainforest there. It's, it's quite mm-hmm. beautiful. In the meantime, the owner of the video store had freed himself and called police. North Vancouver RCMP spread out and began looking for Carla's car, which they hoped would lead to her safe return and the capture of her abductor. That's a pretty distinct car. We're talking an early 90s, so a 1975 Beetle would... Uh, it would stand it, it out. would stand out, yeah, for sure. Yep. As the cops scoured the area, Carla had now met Bonnie, the missing 21-year-old photography store clerk at the brutal gunman's camp in the woods. Wow. Bonnie had been tied naked to a tree and was exhausted from having been violently sexually assaulted over the previous eight days and nights at least four or five times a day. Holy shit. The man wanted to move camp and force both girls back into the Volkswagen, telling Carla to drive them further up Mount Seymour Road and onto the more secluded Indian River Road. (sighs) Cops knew they had to act quickly and began thinking on their feet about where a bad guy could take a woman that was out of the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm imagining Carla in that moment where she meets Bonnie and think like, wow, there's another girl here and then wanted to move further into the yeah. woods, thinking like, oh, geez. What's going to happen Yeah. yeah. Oh. Two RCMP constables settled on Indian River Road near the base of Mount Seymour. It was the most secluded spot that they could think of. Wow. They pulled up, finding the 75 Volkswagen belonging to Carla empty. Wow. It's just amazing how quickly those officers that popped into their head to go check this area. Wow. They were looking into the windows of the car when they heard a woman screaming in the forest. Holy shit. Drawing their weapons and calling out to the woman, she led them to her and her perpetrator's campsite using her voice. Yeah. Screaming, I'm over here. The RCMP officers found 19-year-old Carla now naked and tied to a tree. More cries came from further into the forest and police searching found Bonnie, the 21-year-old photography store clerk who'd been missing for eight days. She was fully clothed at this point, but badly beaten up and clearly traumatized. The the odds of them being alive are rare in these kind of kidnapping situations. So the fact that they're both alive, oh, what? Well, he clearly wasn't done with them yet. Oh, for sure. But, I mean, finding them alive, the, the trauma, these poor girls... Oh. The perpetrator, yet unknown to the North Van RCMP, is nowhere in sight. He'd given them the slip. The manhunt was on. More than 40 RCMP officers using infrared scanning devices and helicopters were scouring the woods in North Vancouver. They'd have to know. He's got to be pretty close. Because, I mean, A, the girls are still alive and talking, so they can tell him. They can tell the officers, like, yeah, he was here an hour ago. No, it was eight hours. So it could really help give them an idea of how far could he have made it on foot during certain... Well, uh, he made it really far on yeah, foot. Yeah, which is quite quite amazing. Um, it is and it isn't. We'll get into why I think mm. it's not. Oh, cool, cool. Um, a crumpled train ticket from Toronto from April 8th, 1992, was found in the Volkswagen. A very interesting time. Yeah, so the day after the Blackburn murders. Yep. Weapons matching those stolen from one of the Caledon burglaries were found at the campsite. Mm -hmm. Ian Blackburn's camera and camera equipment were also found at the site. Oh, okay. And these, they believe, later figured out that they were stolen from Ian Blackburn's home. Yeah, okay, okay. It's terrifying knowing what those cameras were going to be used for. Were. Also found was a list with women's names on it. Yeah, yeah, I can remember uh, the list. It was fairly well talked about at that time, but I, I can remember well because one of my mom's friends' name was on that list, and so I can remember my mom like just talking. So to me who was who was your who was your mom's friend to to this guy? I can't remember. I want to. Uh, I think it was just like how he had found these other girls, where it was just um, you could tell he probably had been stalking them a bit. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think he probably just saw her because she probably would have been in the Kitsilano area. And so, uh, cause that's where my mom lives. And so he probably just stumbled across her, uh, uh working in some store and hmm. started keeping track of her. Oh but, man, that's uh, creepy. But I'm not too sure. I'll have to ask my mom, get more clarity on it. I wish you would have asked her before the show. Yeah, I did. She said she'll look into it. And, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm just like my family. <laughs> The next day, off Capilano Road, the alarm was sounding at Bridge House Restaurant in the wee hours of the morning. Mm. An intercon mobile security guard attended to find a man leaning over a woman who had a plastic bag over her head. Holy shit. The man was twisting a wire from a plant hanger tighter and tighter around her neck. Jesus Christ. The man tried to bolt but was tackled by the guard who bludgeoned him with his maglite flashlight yes. until cops arrived. Yes. The woman was the 53-year-old manager of the Bridge House restaurant who'd been surprised by the gun-wielding dirt bag and brutally sexually assaulted on the property. She was moments from death when the security guard arrived on the scene. She's like, so just imagine, like, he's clearly aware that he's uh, being pursued. Instead of just trying to flee, like, he's so screwed, he's so fucked that he's, like... I'm instead of running, I'm going to, I'm going to do another assault. Yeah. Like what? Like, wow. Wow. Yep. Cops took David Alexander Snow into custody, ending North Vancouver's largest ever manhunt. Wow. And Carol, my wife used to work with differently abled folks mm-hmm. off Capilano Road in a group home. Okay. And this was a couple of years after this, but the rumor was at that group home that Snow had been in the backyard of the group home at one point during his run from police. Oh, geez. Yeah. Oh. If he had been in North Vancouver's woods for a few months, he'd surely have found the Baden-Powell Trail. And that leads from Deep Cove in the east across the mountainous top of North Van all the way to Lions Bay. Mm, okay. So there's a huge network of trails up there that are all really, really well marked. Uh, they even say where they go as far as they go. So I think that's how he was getting around, just using the trails. Yeah, makes makes total sense. Because, I mean, that's one of the, the beautiful things and the highlights uh, of living up there are mm-hmm. all of the trails. People can go hike for walks after work or for a hike. And there's even like a lot of uh, bike trails for yeah. a lot. You know, like it's it's a, an amazing place. Lots of mountain biking. Yeah, so it, 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 there's a lot of trails. And, and so that's a really good uh uh, good call. I know that area really well because I used to, uh, when I was able to run and not waddle, uh, <laughs> I used to run segments of that trail when I lived in New- uh-huh. North, North Vancouver from 1993 to 1999. Yeah, so pretty close after. Yeah. After all this, yep. wow. Yep. Wow. After his arrest and while in pretrial, Snow confessed to a fellow inmate that he had killed an older couple for antiques and money. Wow. Snow said that he had sexually assaulted and strangled a woman in Ontario and that he had killed her husband by placing a plastic bag over his head. Kind of like what was just he was just caught for. Yep, and mm. also what it was assumed in uh, yeah. Ian Blackburn's autopsy. Yeah, yeah. Snow also told this inmate, who is only referred to as FM in court documents, that watching a person's expression when they were being choked turned him on. Oh, my God. Oh. Although David Alexander Snow was charged with 30 offenses stemming from his sexual assault rampage in the Vancouver area over two weeks between June 29th and July 12th, 1992, 15 of those charges were stayed for a variety of reasons. Oh, okay. He would bullshit and say, I didn't do this one, or I did sort of did that one. Yeah, yeah. Interestingly, he was acquitted of the attempted murder charge on the manager of the Bridge Restaurant. She also happened to be an Auschwitz survivor as well. Holy shit. So she hadn't been through enough hell in her life. My God. Acquitted even though he'd been tightening a wire around her neck and was caught in the act. Yeah, I was confused by being acquitted of that. In that case, he was convicted of choking, not attempted murder. (sighs) He was convicted of robbery and sexual assault in that case as well, though. Yeah, it's odd, but I mean, I I guess I can... Uh, it's hard to determine intent w- when choking, I guess, yeah. uh, as opposed to like, I shot you, but you didn't die. That's pretty clearly attempted. Yep. Eh. But still, that's tragic. He was eventually convicted of 16 charges stemming from his BC crime spree. Good. They were five counts of robbery, two counts of kidnapping, five counts of sexual assault, 
two firearms offenses, and one count of choking. I'm curious to see what kind of a sentence comes from all of those heinous things. Sentencing was held over until the next year when they could have a dangerous offender trial to determine whether or not David Snow would ever get out of jail. On July 23rd, 1993, David Alexander Snow was found to be a dangerous offender under Section 753 of the Criminal Code and sentenced to serve an indeterminate sentence by his honor, Judge Paradis of the Provincial Court. Oh, thank God. In a written statement, Snow claimed he'd been, in every way, a normal human being until a short time ago. Hmm, yeah, I'm curious. We probably have different definitions of normal. Yep. Yeah, because, I mean, I, I've never shat in newspapers. No. From a Vancouver Sun article on the case, Dr. Stanley Semrau, court-appointed psychiatrist who dealt with the Abbotsford killer, mm -hmm. Terry Driver, and our recent dirtbag, Michael Wayne McRae, uh. he weighed in on David Snow while being cross-examined by Snow's defense counsel, and what he said was pretty amazing. So here it is. Oh, yeah. It would be unheard of for a nice person to commit the acts that Snow did. It would be incredibly remarkable for there not to be traits of personality disorders. There has not been a recorded case of a person with no personality disorder or major mental illness being capable of committing these offenses, Semrau testified. It would be a psychiatric impossibility, comparable to a man having a baby. Wow. In the absence of a personality disorder, major mental illness, or the onset of a brain tumor, Snow would be unique in the annals of psychiatry. To carry out such a string of offenses, a person must have a serious pathological personality. Damn, that's pretty definitive and damaging. Yeah. Like, and that's his defense that brought that question or brought that up. So it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> his defense uh, attorney in cross examination, trying but, to belittle Semrau. Yeah. I'm sure they didn't, they weren't intending for him to say, like, no, they didn't think that they would get served. <laughs> yeah. And that's a certain mic drop. Yeah. It's like, holy shit. Yep. The court agreed with the Crown's description and Semrau's that these offenses were brutal and characterized them as crimes of stark horror. Yeah. And Rebecca McNall left the stark horror in. She said she knew I would like that. Okay. At the time of this dangerous offender proceeding, Snow had yet to be tried for the murder of Ian and Nancy Blackburn. Still, the judge found that Snow was a dangerous offender based on four sections of the dangerous offender criteria found in the criminal code. One that a pattern of repetitive behavior has been demonstrated under Section 753AI. Two, that a pattern of persistent aggressive behavior within 753AII has been demonstrated. Three, that the brutal nature of the behavior placed within the category defined by Section 753A3 and there was a likelihood of his causing injury, pain, or other evil to other persons through failure in the future to control his sexual impulses within section 753B. It's a lot of sections. Well, it is. Yeah. But technically, guess who's not getting out of jail anymore? This twat waffle. That guy. Yeah. Of course, the appeals began. Of course, yeah. yeah. He cited that the designation was premature as he had not been tried for the murders in Ontario. Wait, he... Yes. This was his uh, appeal? This is why I should not be a dangerous offender, because I haven't been tried for those other things yet. Like, <laughs> So if I get off, if I get off from those murders, maybe that proves I'm not a dangerous offender. Uh, that's some pretty fucked up logic. It's the Chewbacca defense right the there. Chewbacca defense. My God. As uh, Jody Arias' uh, prosecutor said, if the glove don't fit, you're full of shit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, like that, what a, yeah, okay, man, I guess in his, in his head that, that made sense, but not in anyone else's. Yeah, so it was obviously dismissed. Yeah. Snow did not testify in his own murder trial, but his lawyers did call a number of witnesses trying to establish that there were other people in other vehicles that may have been on or around the Blackburn property, 
in April of 1992, and that someone other than Snow had committed the murders of Ian and Nancy. Well, yeah, aside from all those things that link him to it. Yeah, aside from all <laughs> well, Aside from all of that, the evidence, you know. Yeah. On July 17, 1997, Snow was found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder of Ian and Nancy Blackburn. Thank God. So he's already a dangerous offender, so he's already serving an indeterminate sentence. Well... So add more indetermination <laughs> yeah, well, to that sentence. Whenever he dies, they'll just keep bringing him back to life. They and le- letting him live more and then die. and let Just yeah, multiple deaths, multiple lives. Snow is also suspected in the murder of Caroline Case. Oh. Her skeletal remains were found uh, with the rusted remains of her Mercedes in a ditch in September of 1992 in Caledon. Okay. Hmm. This was very close to where the Blackburn farmhouse had been. Okay. Ms. Case was a Toronto antiques dealer. Holy shit. And had gone missing 11 months before. Perhaps this was really David Snow's first murder, but he has not admitted it, nor has he been charged with her death. There's just too many things there that are like, yeah, okay, okay, antiques dealer. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, yeah. Holy Um, crap. I'm, you know, I'm going to say it right here. I'm guilty. Well, I don't know. It, yeah. I just mentioned it because... Because it's quite fascinating. Yeah, that's why. Yeah. Jeez. David Alexander Snow is also suspected in some other Ontario cold cases. And who knows, with uh, DNA technology improving the way it has, he may have some more court time in his future. Yeah, you know, I I wouldn't be surprised if he does have some previous crimes. Yeah. Some, Some serious crimes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So that, friends, is the case of David Alexander Snow. Yeah. Serial killer. Yep. And Wackadoo, who ran across the country yeah. and did some crazy shit here in Vancouver, too. Yeah, it's another one of those cases that, at the time, because I remember it, was very, very well publicized, but then just falls off everybody's radar, and nobody really is aware of it or talks about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and so it's about, you know, again, another, like... Canada is interesting that way. Yeah. We tend to forget these things, and some people have... Some people don't like us bringing them up. Really, eh? Yeah. I mean, we, we've seen it on Twitter a few times yeah. very recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People don't appreciate uh, us bringing this up again. But uh, at the same time, I'm just like, you know what? Why are we not talking about these things? Burying your head in the sand never fixes anything. No. Um, is it good to glorify any of these things and sensationalize them, uh, no. But is it important that we talk about it so that we don't think we're just living in some uh, um, crimeless utopia? Like We have to be aware of it's what's a- happening in our world. <laughs> it's amazing that some people actually think, oh, Canada is like nothing ever bad has happened there. And that's kind of misleading it's it's not only misleading it's kind of the reason why I kind of why I wanted to do this podcast specifically yeah I mean I I will take the stand that we are one of the most amazing and probably safer places to live mm. but um no don't you you can't when you think of Canada, you can't think of us just all like prancing around and Scott, riding Scott prances yeah right riding our uh, moose. Yeah, or dog dog team. What would what would the plural of moose be? Plooses, mooses, meese, meese, meese. Right in our because goose is geese. Yeah, we were riding our meese around. I smoked smoked some dope one time, and uh, that was the most intelligent thing that I could come up with. If goose are geese, our moose meese, our moose meese. Yeah, I'm gonna say yeah. I'm sure we'll be corrected, but uh, I'm going to go with meese. But yeah, there's some pretty terrible shit that happens here. We're not uh, immune to uh, violence. So we're going to go somewhere else to look at the violence there, which is the U.S. That's right. And where in the U.S.? We're going to CrimeCon on June 7th to 9th. Yes. In New Orleans, Louisiana. I am so excited. I am really excited, too. Like, what what an amazing place. I I love character. That's what, in my photography, in anything in life, I love character. And there's a lot there. Oh, my God, Especially because the the Acadians from Nova Scotia moved down there when they were kicked out by the English 
and settled that place. And so there's a lot of French influence. I mean, that's yeah. the French Quarter. Yeah. But a lot of French influence in the architecture and the food. Yeah. And all that kind of stuff. So I'm really looking yeah. forward to some good southern hospitality. And I know we're going to have a great time down there. Yeah, I'm so stoked. I had a fantastic time in Nashville when I went last year. And uh, so this will be my second Crime Con and Scott's first. Woo! But we are both really, really looking forward to it. Oh, yeah. Uh, we'll be on Podcast Row with some of our favorite true crime podcasts like Generation Y, Minds of Madness, Trace Evidence, Trail Went Cold, Criminology, True Crime All the Time. Um, my goodness, they just, uh, Once Upon a Crime, they just go on and on and on. There's a lot of folks going to be there. And, and we're up there with them, Mike. Yeah. Our little podcast. Our little dinky little podcast. We're, we're right going to be up there with them. It's pretty, pretty mind blowing. So if you plan on going and you haven't purchased tickets, please use our code poutine19 for 10% off your ticket purchase. And the more people who use our code, the more chance we have of getting some perks ourselves, like our hotel expenses covered and even flights if we do really well. Uh, these things are out of pocket for us right now, so it would help us out a lot. And these pockets are pretty uh, shallow. Well, because they're mine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just Why don't you just sew bigger pockets into your pants? I, sh- I should solved. put bigger pockets in my pants. Problem solved. Anyway, uh, check out our show notes on darkpoutine.com for more information, links, and photos of this case and others as well as our store where you can get swag. Oh, yes. More and more people purchasing the swag as they should. And it's I am, dope shit. And I am talking to a Canadian provider now. Oh, thank God, yeah. Yeah, but this Canadian provider, if it works out, I'm really hoping we could get hockey jerseys and toques. Oh, my God. That would be... Epic. Epic. Yes. Like, perfect swag. Yeah, so I'm working on it, folks. Bear with us. Uh, before we go, we want to give some shout-outs to our Patreon patrons. This week's good eggs are Christine Harris from Bellevue, Washington, oh. just across the border there. Yeah, another another close individual. Hey, Christine. Natalie Grosso from St. Louis, Missouri, also home of John Hamm from Mad, oh. of Madman well, fame. I love him. Yeah, uh, that's where he grew up. Uh, hi, Natalie. Backtracks.fm in Austin, Texas. Wait a minute. They are a prime minister. They supported us. That's awesome. Thanks, Backtracks. Stacy. Yep. Just Stacy. You know what? Her mom has got it going on. Stacy's mom. Yeah, it's apparently. Kind of, yeah, yeah. Well, and uh, that's a good thing. But where is she from? Uh, oh, Stacy, question mark, question mark, question mark, is from, um, okay, you're going to have to edit out this delay. Um uh, I'm not going to edit anything. Oh, else. my dear God. No, no, because it's because I'm so like, I know the place. I love the place, but it's so hard to pronounce. Um, uh, it, what state is it in? It's in the state of. Uh, is it in a country or a state? No, it's in a country. What country? The the Western countries. The Western countries. Oh, it's uh, Slo- Slovenia. And I always get that confused. That's not West. That's East. Well, yeah, you get my East and West confused. That's easy to do. Because if you go far She's enough, in, one Slo- Slovenia. Slovenia. Or was it Slovakia? I don't know. It's some Slovia somewhere. There's, there's a it's slow. A, it's a slow in there. It's Slavic. Yeah. Uh, and she- So it, Stacy is Slavic? That sounds very English to me. Actually. I know. But, well, it's weird. What are you going to do? Maybe her family immigrated? I is don't her know. last name Dracul? Uh, no, it, it, it's... So she's not from Transylvania. No, no, no. And and her job, oddly enough, is a butter churner. Who knew that those were still a thing? I kind of like to watch people churn butter. It's pretty, it's pretty neat to watch, but you would think with all the technology out there nowadays, we don't need to butter churn. But because it's such a custom and, and unique market, boy... It's profitable. That's she, she's, she's making a killing turning butter up there in Slovenia or Slovakia, some of the Slovias. So, yeah. so someone we met at our meetup in Victoria this past weekend, Carrie Martin from Souk, BC. That's right. Oh, Thanks, she was awesome. Carrie. Yeah. yeah, she was awesome. Uh, we had our picture taken with her. We did, and and uh, she does some cool artwork herself. Uh, another Nova Scotian, Kirby Raycraft from Eastern Passage, Nova Scotia. Oh, hey, Kirby. Guts to you. love me, those blue nosers. You, Every time I see really a blue did. noser's name pop up, I got to say it. You really do. Well, because. Uh, Melissa Lovell from San Diego, California. Oh, Melissa. And uh, wasn't Ron Burgundy from San Diego? Yeah, he was. And what did he say? 
San Diego stood for, Scott. Oh, dear God, I can't remember. Um, and nobody, please be offended. I am just quoting. He said it was a whale's vagina. Oh, what, but if you're a whale, that's like a hot thing. I guess so. Yeah, whales would be like, ooh, yeah, check out that whale vagina. Uh, I do believe it means St. Diego, but... Uh, Let's go with whale vagina. <laughs> uh, Rachel Polisell. Yep. I'm not sure where she's from, but I do think... You do. No, not often, but you do. I do think that there may be some relationship oh, oh. to Rio de Janeiro there. I'm just saying. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, that oh, was it, that Rachel Pozo? Yeah, it could yeah. be. Yeah, it's such a beautiful place, Rio yeah. de Janeiro. Yeah. I'm, my, all the times I haven't been there, I've loved it. It, it, it was great. Um, what do you think she does there? I think she's a mar mixed martial arts fighter. Oh, my God. I, oh, that's why her name is so familiar. Yes. Yeah. She took Spider out. She did. She, she took, broke his other leg. Which, you know, please, Anderson Silva is like my favorite uh, uh, mixed martial artist ever. Like, that was- Stop I breaking his legs. Yeah, Rachel. I mean, it's just like, please, please. Unacceptable. Go after some other people. Like, go take out Lou Rockhold or something, him and his smug face, but leave Anderson Silva alone. He's done so much for the sport. Carrie Payton from Yucaipa, California. Oh, hey, Carrie. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you. Emma Doyle. From Edinburgh, Scotland. Hey, it's my, uh, my homeland. I'm named after it. and uh, Sc Or actually, Sc Scotland was named after me. Oh. My grandmother was Scottish. Yeah, I can't... I'm trying to remember where my... She used to say, Oh, look in me purse. The bunny came. The bunny came in me purse. And she didn't mean that the bunny uh, ejaculated into her purse. Thanks for clarifying. What she meant was that uh, there was a toy in there for us, and so I got a rubber alligator once. Oh, I remember. Oh, that's that's nice. So hey, the a bunny, bunny came in my purse. A bunny brought in my wee purse. A bunny brought an alligator, rubber alligator. Yeah. Her, okay, that's very odd, but okay. Yeah. And yeah. she used to tell me that um, when it was thundering, yeah, it was the gods are bowling. No, they get they get bored. Yeah, I guess they, so. They get aboard. Why not? They're bowling. Why not throw a little 10 pin up there? There you go. Uh, Megan Tyner, uh, she's another prime minister, now from Bruderheim, California. Wow, what a German-sounding uh, Californian Bruderheim, name. Bruderheim, uh, California versus Los. Thank you, Megan. Thanks for being a PM. Uh, Chantel Leitner from Kelowna, BC. Hey, Chantel. Somebody else we met at the meetup. Yes. In Victoria. Nicole Post. Yeah, she was sitting from, from Shawnigan Lake. Yeah, one person over from me. Super good. Yeah. Super good people. A good egg. Yes. Well, let's just say she visited us. She visited us, and what an awesome person she was. Really yeah. good. Mary Wharton. Yep. Wharton here's a who. Oh, okay. Yep. 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 So she's from Whoville. She is from Whoville. Yes. I wonder if she knows Cindy Lou. Well, e Cindy Lou who did email me by the way. I know. I'm I'm aware, but Mar Mary doesn't really want to talk about that. Um, I, I've had some pretty, pretty in-depth conversations with Mary about it. Um, there's some trauma. There's some trauma surrounding there you go, yeah. all of that. All the Grinch stuff. Well, the Grinch stuff, but her, her and, uh, uh Mary Lou, let's just say, say Cindy let, Lou. Yeah, Mary, Cindy, one of the Lou sisters. Uh, let's just say that had they been friends... There may have been a pretty ugly falling out at one point, and so it really she's it really hurts her to talk about. Yeah, when friendships break up like that, it can be pretty pretty rough. And so for for Mary, it, yeah, it's it's uh, she doesn't want to talk about it, but I just did. So I'm go. sorry if I outed you, Mary. You're such at a all. piece of crap. I know I'm a dillweed. Tanya McCutcheon from Ferndale, Washington. Hey, Tanya. And also from Washington in Covington. Paige Williams. Oh, hey, Paige. And if, with Tanya, one of my, my old bosses who, who died from mad cow disease, he worked at, or he actually had a home in Ferndale. So. He died, died from uh, Crutchfeld Jakob disease. Yes, he did. That is a very scary thing. I've yes. seen that happen. It it's was not a, pleasant. It was a pretty bizarre uh, situation. It's rare. It's for another day. Uh, thank you so much for our patrons, past and present, for your pledges. We really appreciate your support of the show. Yes, we mentioned that swag is coming over the next couple of weeks. If you want to help or support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. Or for one-time support, you can send us some donut mo money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. Now, Mike, is it via or via? It doesn't matter. This is a very important thing.
Via. I'm going to say via. We did get some donut money this week. What? From Jill Perrin. Oh. And Monica Holsengerf. Wow. Thank you, Jill and Monica. Super Muchos awesome. Muchos gracias. Thank you very much. All of the gracias. If you don't already, it would mean a lot to us if you subscribe to the show. You can easily find us on iTunes Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio, or wherever you're listening to us. How about that? I like that. Please give us a follow or a like on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine. Yes, do it. Join us in the Yumber Yard. We're just about at 3,000 people, which is mind-boggling. Insane. Uh, it's full of good eggs uh, who call themselves Yumberjacks or Yumberyaks. Uh, again, if you if you have if you're overly sensitive about things, maybe not joining a podcast uh, group, group about murder and, and where and we're we're we we have some fun. We have some fun, and uh, sometimes it's not to everybody's liking. It we, may we, not be politically correct. Sometimes, and, and we will absolutely, uh, if you let us know about it, we'll absolutely look into it. But uh, you know, it's just it's it, it's all in in good fun, and it's such an amazing. If you find yourself offended a lot, yes, best not to come in there. Shit, I better get out of it. Exactly, I, I, I cry a lot because of it. So there you go. That's it for this week. All I got to say is don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. Guten Tag, night children. Murderpedia.